What's up, Mike? How you doing? Good. How you doing? How you feeling today? Oh, good, good. Got my coffee, my big coffee. I'm ready to go. Yeah, so um, let's get started, man. We're talking about um, Steve Marriott. So this is episode 100 of The Rock Show, 100 episodes. Can you believe that? Wow, man. It's 100 episodes. Yeah, we're going to reminisce a little bit after this about the last 100. And uh, I'm just, you know, grateful, man. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, and you know what? We're, we, we're like steamrolling. We're getting some good um, reviews. Uh, you know, a lot of people start watching the show. Um, I, I put up the uh, Grand Funk Railroad, and it's doing pretty good so far. Yeah, yeah, I saw you did put that up. Um, yeah, uh, also like the Leather Leone interview that we did. That's, yeah. been, that's been doing good. And, and uh, then we got the news about doing well in Sweden and Australia. So things are going pretty good for us, man. Yeah, we got to give a shout-out to, to Sweden, to Australia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. hope any Swedish or Australian people out there, contact us. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah. So, all right. So, so we, we got, got today? We got Mr. Steve Marriott, okay? Uh, very important British musician. Uh, was in The Small Faces. He was in Humble Pie uh, and a couple other things. And um, really kind of, a, I don't want to say forgotten because a lot of people do look back at the small faces is very influential, but yeah. I, I don't think he quite. And he's and he's in the rock and roll hall of fame, ain't he? Uh, he's in under the small faces, not by himself. Yeah, no, but yeah. I mean that's still that's still something you know. At least yeah. he made it in there. Yeah, yeah, and it took a long time. I think it was only a few years ago that that happened. Yeah. Um, but I mean, he had an amazing life. Uh, he, you know, in in a short period of time, ten year period, really. You know, he was very influential to a lot of things that came after. Uh, I'm a big Small Faces fan, so I, you know, I, I, I love that stuff. Uh, it was that whole like '60s mod movement and all that. Very interesting stuff. But all right, so Marriott was born January 30th, 1947, in the East Ham section of London, and his parents were named Kay and Bill Marriott. They came from a working class background. Bill Marriott was actually a printer, and, and he also used to sell eels <laughs> at a fish stand. Okay. That's fucking weird. Well, you know, people in those days would buy shit like that, you know. Uh he also sold potato pies. I mean we're talking about Britain. They eat potatoes with everything, right? Um his mother Kate worked at a sugar factory for a while. So they were like working class people and Steve as a young kid, he had an early interest in music. His father bought him a ukulele and a harmonica both of which he taught himself to play very quickly. Uh, he also learned that singing and playing an instrument at bus stops could earn him some extra cash. So as a young kid, he used to you know, sit with his ukulele or his harmonica and he could sing too. And he had a very good voice and, and you know, he would just earn a few extra bucks as a kid. Now, his musical talents would also come in handy uh, every year when his parents used to go on vacation, they used to go down to a beachfront 
area and he would enroll in talent contests and stuff. And, uh, you know, he would always win. So, you know, he, he was like a child prodigy in a way. Okay. Yeah. Um, he was, uh, he was a musical genius almost yeah, in a way. Yeah. I mean, as, as a kid. So in 1959, when he was 12, he formed his first band with uh, schoolmates, Nigel Ch- Chapin and Robin Andrews. Uh, they would add friends, Simon Simpkins and Vic Dixon and go through a series of name changes in the band, but they were very influenced by Buddy Holly. And uh, Buddy Holly, it's, you know, one thing, I, I'd like to do a show him at some point, but it, what's kind of lost in history is how huge Buddy Holly was in England. Okay, guys like Marriott, guys like Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, they were like gigantic, you know, Buddy Holly fans at that time, you know. Uh, he made a mark in, in the British scene, even long after he was dead. Uh, but uh, he liked, Marriott liked Buddy Holly so much that he would wear glasses like him on purpose. And just I know, the, I'd seen and that. And take, yeah. take the lenses out, you know. Um, but uh, he wrote a song. Uh, one of his first songs he ever wrote was a song called Sheila, My Dear. And it's done in a Buddy Holly style. And Sheila was like an aunt that he was really close with. Thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, it was his form of Peggy Sue. I guess so. You know, and sometimes he even went by the nickname of Buddy. But uh, he was a hyperactive kid, okay, from an early age. He liked to play pranks, practical jokes on people, other kids in the neighborhood he would mess with. Uh, while he was a student at the Sandringham Secondary Modern School, Marriott was rumored to have set a classroom on fire. Okay. Wow. As a prank. And he always said it wasn't true. He denied it. But people on the scene there said that, yeah, he did it. He actually set the, the room on fire. But you know what's funny? That's going to come in full circle later. You know, isn't that kind of prophetic, right? Yeah. <laughs> Considering what happened to him. But yeah, think in, about in, that. <laughs> I know. In, in, in 1960, Steve's dad, Bill, spotted an advertisement in a London newspaper for a new artful Dodger role in the in Lionel Bart's popular musical Oliver um, based on Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. Uh, it was at the new theater in London's West End. And without saying anything, he applied Steve into the role. But he ended up auditioning and he started singing uh, a song called Who's Sorry Now by Connie Francis to audition. And then he also did Oh Boy by Buddy Holly. Lionel Bart was actually there himself doing the audition. And uh, he was personally auditioning, just happened to be that day. And he was impressed with Steve's voice and he hired him on the spot. Yeah, that was pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah. So he was about 13. Um, He ended up playing several roles in that play. And uh, it went on for about a 12-month period. He got paid eight pounds a week, which was a lot of money back then. Yeah. Now, he also sang... The Artful Dodger songs, Consider Yourself, Be Back Soon, and I'd Do Anything, which appear on the official soundtrack of the stage show. The record was recorded at the famous Abbey Road Studios, and in 1961, the family would move to a better area, a nicer apartment in the Danes Close Manor Park area outside London. Uh, following Marriott's successful acting debut in Oliver, his family encouraged him encouraged him to pursue an acting career. That's what they really wanted for him. But he would audition and be accepted as a student into the Italia Conti Academy of Theatre Arts in London. His family 
unfortunately could not afford the school, the school fees. So the school made arrangements to deduct the fees from his acting roles that the school would find him. Okay. That's how much they wanted this kid. Okay. They were willing wow. to, you know, make that kind of arrangement. Not too many people would get that, but he quickly got small roles in film, TV and radio. He was often kind of typecasted as the energetic, wise-ass Cockney kid, okay, uh, that really wasn't much different than what he was. You know, you know what the expression Cockney, you know, you, you ever hear that before? Yeah, what is it? Yeah. It's kind of like a, a street kid in London, you know, like, like what you would see in old movies like, uh, like, a, like a Brooklyn kid, like a Bowery boy. Okay, like that, a cock, when they would, like a cockney kid, like with a, a very specific accent. I was reading like a few years ago that like the whole cockney thing is like dead in London. Like there's no, that doesn't exist anymore. It's kind of like gone. All right. And it was just kind of like if you watch old movies and you hear like that real like British, it's, it's specific. It's almost like what a Brooklyn accent would be for New York. Okay. And uh, he was that kind of kid. Okay, he was like a little street kid and he would just be put into these kind of roles. And it was perfect because that's really he didn't have to act. That's what he was. But (laughs) um, soon, though, Marriott would lose interest in acting. And that created a big problem in his family. There was a lot of arguments about that. He told his family he wanted to pursue a musical career and they were pissed and disappointed with him. And he would leave home for a little while at that point and he would stay with friends. So he was about 15, 16 when he made that announcement. Um, In 63, Steve Marriott wrote a song called Imaginary Love. And he shopped it around to see if some labels would be interested. And he got a record deal with Decca. Okay. And it was as a solo artist. He had an agent named Dick Reagan. And Dick Reagan was a guy who who was around for a bit. He he uh, He actually represented Cliff Richard. And Cliff Richard was a major singing uh, artist in England at the time, kind of like an Elvis type of type of singer. Uh, he had one hit here in America in the 70s. I think it was that, that song, Devil Woman. But uh, he was big in England. Um, and this guy represented him as well. So Marriott's first single would be written by Kenny Lynch who was the only black major songwriter in the British music business at that time. Uh, It was a song called Give Her My Regards, and they put Imaginary Love that Marriott had wrote on the B-side. Unfortunately, it flopped, uh, and that that was the summer of 63. Now, later that year, um, not to rest on his laurels, he he was always out doing something. He started a band called The Frantics, and they would record a cover version of Cliff Richard's movie. But it didn't make a buzz anywhere. And it was actually never officially released. Uh, the band would, would, would change their name from the Frantics to the Moments. And sometimes it was called Steve Marriott and his Moments. Uh, they played support for artists like the Animals. They would open for them. They would open for John Mayall. Uh, John Mayall is great. Yeah, places like the 100 Club in Soho or the Crawdaddy Club in Richmond where the Stones played a lot. Uh, yeah. The Moments actually had a devoted following for a while um, and even had their own fanzine called Beat 64. Now, in fact, in 1964, they performed 80 total gigs and got asked to record a single for the American market. Wow. They, yeah, they recorded the cover of The Kinks' You Really Got Me. 
Yeah. And it was for the World Artists label, which had actually released the Oliver soundtrack a few years earlier. So their version of the Kinks song didn't really gain any interest. And Steve actually got kicked out of the band. And it was the band he started because the other members claimed that he was too young to be a lead singer. And he was only 17. But at this point, Steve would look to join the London band, the Downliner Sect, as a harmonica player. But singer Don Crane didn't allow him to audition because he knew Marriott really had his eyes on being the lead vocalist. It, it, you know, it, that, this is when you can kind of notice how, how Steve Marriott was. Um, he, he, he was really kind of like, you know, no, way, no nice way to say it. He was full of himself. Okay. Yeah. He had a lot of he had a lot, he had he had a lot of balls, a lot of attitude. Uh, I guess you could say it's like typical lead singer syndrome. Uh, but he wanted to be a star, and he had the talent. That's the thing, you know. It, this was no joke. He had a great, soulful voice. Uh, he could write a song. He could play guitar very well. Uh, he was a star. He just didn't find his niche yet. But when he nah. was playing with, you know, some of these people would get turned off by playing with them after a while, you know. And this would be a, a problem through his whole life and we'll talk about it because he was now, probably a little cocky little fuck yeah exactly a little cocky little bastard but um after a brief moment in the band the checkpoints marriott's fortune would be written for him when he saw his 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 future so, uh, small faces partners that would be ronnie lane and 16 year old kenny jones playing their band at a gig in Raynham. okay Ronnie Lane and Marriott would meet again at a music shop that Marriott was working at. It was called the J60 Music Bar. And Lane came in to buy a bass. Uh, he ended up bullshitting with, with Marriott for a little while. And he, uh, Marriott invited Ronnie back to his home to check out this extensive collection of American R&B records that he had. He had this huge collection of 45s. And Kenny Jones would actually join up with them and they would all be, the three of them would become close friends. Now, yeah. Lane, Lane and Jones invited Marriott to perform with the Outcasts. Uh, that was a band they were involved with. Yeah. Um, and it was from the Bermondsey area, which is in the Southeast end of London. The three got lumped up one night and Marriott broke the piano he was using, okay, at the gig. And the landlord threw them out of the place they were performing in. And it ended the band right there. Like the band broke up at wow. that point. But at that yeah, point, also, Marriott was friends with a guy named Davy Jones. Remember Davy Jones? Yeah, David Bowie. David Bowie, right. And they had planned to actually start a duo together uh, based on R&B music. It was going to be called Davy and Goliath, but it never went I, anywhere. I think that would have been great. That would have been interesting, right? Those maybe two like guys? A, like a, like a British Simon and Garfunkel or something like yeah, that. Yeah, you know? it would have ended bad anyway, but it would have been great seeing <laughs> well, them. Right but yeah, I mean, they would have, uh, that would have been two egos right there, you know, the two of them and their egos. Oh, those are two egomaniacs. Uh, yep, as much yep. as, you know, I love David Bowie, but he was one that was like, you know. Oh, definitely, definitely. Now, instead, the trio of, of Marriott, Lane, and Jones, and then keyboard player Jimmy Winston started the Small Faces. Now, you know how they got their name? Oh. Okay, the name comes from the new mod scene that was popular at the time. When somebody's yeah. called a face, okay, it's a mod guy who wears the sharpest clothes, coolest records that he has, and he's also got the hottest chick on his arm. 
I wonder if that's what they call face on the eighteen. If it was because of that, I don't think so. Because he was like a good-looking guy. Maybe, yeah, maybe because he was a good-looking guy. They called him the face. The face. But, uh, but in, in, in England, there was actually a, a whole mod scene. Now, it wasn't just you – could you weren't just a, a face if you were a mod. You had to be like a mod that people could look up to. Yeah. All right. So the Who, who were part of the early mod scene also, when they were called the high numbers before they were called the Who, they had a song called I'm the Face. Okay. You want to hear something funny? It's like a wrestler. You know what's a good guy? A good guy. It's a face, mm. and a bad guy is a heel. Right. I guess it's a, yeah. Maybe it's the same thing. I guess I think they, it's, it's terminology. Related. I think it's terminology that they use that it just turned into different thing. But yeah, in wrestling. The faces were the good guys. The guys that were like oh fighting for just whatever. But that's right. What the faces whether were. it's fighting for justice or looking good or you know or looking good. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's funny. Now. Early sets of the small faces. Oh, one thing, too, to mention. The reason why they say small is because that they were all short guys. They were all – nobody was taller than 5'6". Yeah. So they were called the small faces. Now, in the early sets, the band would do covers of American black R&B artists like Smokey Robinson, James Brown. They would cover Benny King's Stand By Me a lot. Um, they had a few originals off the bat, too. One was um, – a Marriott Lane song called E to D. And uh, Marriott was able to kind of show off his soulful singing style with that song. Um, e to D, when it was released in America on their first album, it was called Running Wild. But in England, it was called E to D. Now, a local club owner named Maurice King uh, began kind of finding them gigs uh, somewhere in London or kind of on the outskirts. And they usually ended up playing what were called Teddy Boy bars, okay? Or they would play in front of Teddy Boys. Now, Teddy Boys and mods did not get along. That was, no. the, that was, the, that was the problem. So what would happen is if, if a mod band, band came in, <clears throat> you know, hopefully they didn't get their ass kicked. But if that didn't happen, they would usually end up just playing a couple of songs and, and they would be like, take it off the stage and get paid. And that would be it. They'd be told to leave. And that used to happen a lot to them. I mean, I guess it was easy money, but they, they were always kind of taking a risk. But one time when it happened, they walked into a mod club that happened to be across the street after they got thrown out of the Teddy Boy place. And uh, <laughs> it, it happened to be a place called the King Mojo Club. And it was a brand new mod-themed place. Uh, they actually walked in, liked the scene, and they offered to play for free. And this was kind of how they established themselves in into the mod scene. Marriott was always, you know, into looking good. And, and Ronnie Lynn, they, they all were. You know, they were all into looking good. And uh, the mod scene was kind of just a perfect fit for them. Um, soon, they would establish a residency at the Cavern Club at Leicester, Leicester Square, um, where they were supported by an American act called Sonny and Cher. Sonny and, and Cher were opening for them, and they were actually living in London at the time. So that's now, the pretty crazy. Club, yeah, the Cavern Club also, you know, is famous because of the Beatles playing there too early on. Um, now they would connect right away with this manager named Don Arden, and Don Arden I mentioned before is, is Sharon Osbourne's father, and he managed a lot of bands over the years. Uh, basically, ripped them all off. Um, they signed a contract with him, big mistake, 
And yeah. he connected he connected them with Decca Records. Now their first single was a top twenty UK hit called What You Gonna Do About It. Yep. And Marriott and Lane are credited for writing the music part, but the lyrics are credited to Drifters band member Ian Samwell and also a guy named Brian Potter, who often wrote lyrics for the four tops. So they were getting some good, you know, R and B influence and some help right there. Uh, their second single failed to capitalize on the top 20 success of the first one. It was a song called I've Got Mine, and it actually didn't chart at all, despite Don Arden getting them in a film called Dateline Diamonds. It was a crime drama. And yeah. there's, a scene, there's a scene in the movie where they're singing that song. But for some reason, it just, it just didn't take off. Now, keyboardist Jimmy Winston at that point would leave the band. That was in late 65. He wanted to pursue a solo career and an acting career. He would actually become successful in TV and film, getting some parts. But according to Kenny Jones, the drummer, uh, Winston also kind of had some issues with Steve Marriott as the lead singer. He wanted to be, uh, you know, Winston wanted to be more than just a keyboardist. I think there was a little competition there back and forth. But Winston ended up getting replaced by Ian McLaughlin. And uh, he fitted perfectly on keyboard. Uh, he also looked like a mod. It was a perfect fit. And on November 2nd, 1965, McLoggin played his first gig with the Small Faces. But by January 66, they would release their third single, a song called Sha La La Lee. And it was written specifically for the band by the guy who wrote Viva Las Vegas for Elvis, a guy named yep. Mort Schumann. And uh, also uh, a popular English singer named Kenny Lynch gets a writing credit on that song as well. The song was a smash. It made it to number three in England that year. And on May 11th, 1966, they would release their first full LP, the self-titled Small Faces. The album did well, and it kind of assured them regular appearances on Ready, Steady, Go and Top of the Pops. Um, they also toured the UK extensively at that point. Uh, when they released the single All or Nothing, and it got to number one in August of 66, they were set to tour the U.S. for the first time, but there would be a problem. Uh, the tour was supposed to have them backing the Love and Spoonful and the Mamas and the Papas, but Don Arden had to pull the plug because McLaughlin, he he got a drug bust. And they tried to cover it up, but details of it was leaked to the press and it, it got out. So that was a problem and, and he had to cancel the tour. Yeah, so, that's it. Yeah, so by the end of 66... They had a number one single, a popular album, and other hit songs, yet they didn't have any money. All right? It's Which amazing. So, so typical of, of bands in the 60s. That happened to everybody, right? But the band confronted Don Arden about it and actually confronted them with their parents there, okay? Because they were all still, you know, young at that point. 66, they weren't even 20 yet, all right? So um, Arden, in this meeting actually drops a bomb and tells the parents that they, all their kids are on drugs. Oh, my okay. God. And they, yeah. they fuck them up. Yeah, so that was a, a, a big problem. And, and they would break with Arden at that point and Decca also because it was kind of like a double package. Yeah. But right away, they connected with the newly formed immediate record label, and that was started by ex-Rolling Stones manager Andrew Lug Oldham. Uh, he gave them a blank check. He liked them, and he said he gave him a blank check to 
to go work it with producer Glenn Johns at the Olympic Studios in London, um, which was a very nice thing to do. Um, their first single was the controversial Here Comes the Nice, okay, which was clearly influenced by their drug use. Now, when yeah. you talk about their drug use, uh, <laughs> you know, what were they doing? They were doing speed. Okay, a lot of mods did speed, but you know, speed wasn't exactly illegal at that point. You could, you know, in those days, you could get speed prescribed to you as a fucking way to lose weight. All right, so you know, people people were doing that, and it kept you awake in the studio. This is why people did it. They didn't know what would happen to you, really. They didn't, you know, they didn't understand that then. But one thing these guys were into too was doing a lot of acid and stuff like that. Yeah, they were getting fucked up, man. Yeah, and here comes the nice was kind of like a psychedelic. Uh, song and, and you know the, the music was going in that direction and there's actually a direct reference to speed use in that song he, they're just talking about someone that they call the nice and he says here comes the nice he brings me speed <laughs> much you know, the dealer. he was the dealer but they they um somehow it got past the censors and it got on the radio and it did well but people were like wait a minute he's talking about speed but they would uh, release a new self-titled LP. So their second LP would be Small Faces once again. Uh, it came out in June of 67. 13 of the 14 songs were written by Marriott and Lane. And that was kind of in contrast to the first album on Decca, which had a lot of covers. But yeah. another, another change was the album was a switch from kind of the mod sound to psychedelic power pop kind of stuff okay and ian mcloggin wrote a track they were, called, they were definitely like rock and roll to me that sounded like rock and roll i know they call yeah. them all these fancy names but they were like a, they were like a modern day uh rock group you know they would just play good tunes with a little bit of yeah, r&b no, yeah it was an r&b influenced but you yeah. know when they got to this period if you listen to it you know like um this is the period where they, they were doing like ichiku park yeah. Okay. And that's kind of like a little psychedelic nugget, you know, a little two minute psychedelic good, song. It's, it's a good song. It's a great song. Isn't it yeah. always on? It's always on an eyeball. I always hear yeah. it. Yeah. It's a great song. So that's mm-hmm. what I mean. It's like, but to yeah. me, when I listen to everybody naming all these labels, it's good fucking rock and roll. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, don't we always say that? I mean, it just comes down yeah, to that. Yeah. Right? You could put a million labels that. on it. Yeah. You could put a million you labels. Know? It's just good rock and roll. But, uh, Ian McLoggin wrote a song called Up the Wooden Hills to Bedfordshire. That was the one good contribution he had. Um, some other classics on there are like the Marriott Lane, written My Way of Giving and Get Yourself Together. Uh, the album would make it to number 12. And shortly after its release, the band would also release the non-album single Ichiku Park. And it yep. would become the band's only top 40 American hit. It peaked at number 16 that year, and it would make it to number three in England. So in, in those days, if you thought of the small faces, if you were an American, that's the only song you really know. You know, the other stuff wasn't even released here yet. Yeah, they, um, didn't, they didn't take stuff out until later on. Well, after Ichiku Park broke, I'm going to talk about that in a minute. That's when they started getting some American releases. Yeah. They, what, what happened was they, they Don Arden and Decca they had the falling out, right? So at the same time that this album was doing well, Decca decided to release some previously unreleased recordings of the Small Faces, including earlier versions of the songs just released on Immediate. 
on that album. So they came out with their own album. Yeah. Okay. The band's not even with them anymore, just to kind of capitalize on the success of the band, which is a scumbag move. But this created a situation with the band competing with itself on two different labels at the same time. Okay. But, you know, and we've seen that happen with, with several bands over the years. Yeah. It used to happen. But, it, you know, it was something that couldn't be helped. But in December 67, uh, they would release a follow up to Ichiku Park. And it was a song called Tin Soldier. And it featured American black R&B singer P.P. P. Arnold on backing vocals. Uh, the song was a hit and it, it reached number nine in the UK and it got to number 73 in America. Now, the immediate Small Faces album would see an American release at that point. And it was renamed There Are But Four Small Faces. And it had a few track changes, including the singles Here Comes the Nice, Ichiku Park, and Tin Soldier on it. But they also took off a couple of songs. So Tin Soldier's you know, a good song, too. Tin Soldier's a great song. I don't know why that wasn't a bigger hit here. Yeah. Uh, they might have not done enough to, to push it. But uh, I, that's one of my favorite songs. I mean, you know, P.P. Arnold was a great singer and just having her in the backup. The video is cool, too. Did you ever see the video? No. Yeah, there's a video for that, like just them playing on stage. Very good. Um, the next single to come out would be called Lazy Sunday, and it was released in April 68. It was kind of a almost a novelty song. It was an East End music hall type of song, and it was released without the band's consent. It was written by Marriott and was influenced by his fights that he would have with his neighbors about noise and stuff. And uh, it was recorded almost as a joke, but the, the, the label put it out and the single got to number two, surprisingly, in the UK. That's crazy. But, yeah, but the band never, never, if you listen to it, it's almost a joke song. Like they just talk, they're talking about like different people, like, you know, on a Sunday, the, the neighbor coming, banging on the door and then. To me, yeah, I thought because, it was like a little kickback to a Sunday afternoon by the Kings. Good point. Good, yeah. It, yeah, that's, that's a good, that's a good was, observation. Yeah, that, I thought it was I a throwback say. to that. It was their former Sunday afternoon. It's a lazy yeah. afternoon. Kinda, <laughs> saying, they, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, I yeah. never thought of that, Rob. Yeah, that's, that's good. But um, the single did get to number two, despite them not wanting to release it. It's now, amazing. The, yeah, now the final official single of the small faces would be the, the folky sounding, the universal. And it was released in the summer of 68. The song featured Marriott playing acoustic guitar and was actually recorded partially in his backyard. And you could hear like a, his dog barking in the background, <laughs> but the, the single got to number 16 and uh, you know, it, it, it kind of disappointed Marriott. I think he wanted it to do a little bit better, but now in 68, they were very prolific because in the spring of that year, Okay, they would release the psychedelic opus Ogden's Nut Gone Flake album. Okay, and it was a concept album that came in a round cover, okay, which resembled an antique chewing tobacco can. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, now it's a a concept album, okay, and uh, it's just like I have it here, I'm trying to find it. Uh, Oh, well, I got it here somewhere, but uh. It's it's a it's a it, it's it, it I don't know I've listened to it several times and I think it's a good record I just don't quite get the concept of it okay but uh, I think they were all kind of like getting high at that point 
you know, but uh, it's kind of a, what they call a two act concept album. And it consisted of six original songs on side one. And then uh, basically the, the second side is like this psychedelic fairy tale. And it kind of relates to this guy named Happiness Stan. Okay. And he has these adventures and his whole thing is he's trying to find out what happens to the moon when it goes down. So I think like somebody was doing a lot of acid on that album, right? Yeah, they were definitely doing a lot <laughs> yeah. of acid. Yeah. The album actually got to number one in the UK, but it didn't do anything in America. It only got to number 153. It is considered like a 60s psychedelic classic, like up there now with Sgt. Pepper and SF Sorrow and, you know, other psychedelic stuff. But critics liked the album when it came out, but the problem is they couldn't really perform the album live. Yeah. All right, it had a lot of production and sound effects and other things, kind of like a Sgt. Pepper. And uh, I don't even think they realized that when they made it, that it would be hard to, to do live. But it, was, it, it, it got performed one time in its entirety, and it was on a TV show called Color Me Pop, which was kind of similar to the old Grey Whistle test. Okay. So they, did the, they did the whole thing as a concept in one shot on that show. I'd love to see that. I don't know if there's any footage of that. But uh, Marriott was, was looking to evolve the group's sound at this point and bring in Peter Frampton, who he had befriended. Uh, he was in a band formerly called The Herd. And Lane and McLoggin um, and, and Jones absolutely refused. They didn't want to bring uh, Frampton in. But Marriott kind of felt that all creativity in the band had kind of run out. And he wanted to change the sound or evolve the sound. He robbed the sound, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and they weren't for it. So what happened was he started hanging out with Peter Frampton a lot and this bass player named Greg Ridley. And rumors were, were bounding that, uh, you know, the band was breaking up and the Small Faces wouldn't be around anymore. Mary was going to leave. He would always deny it. But then on New Year's Eve 1968, the band was doing a show and, and it was actually going very badly for some reason. Uh, and Steve Marriott just like quit, like right on stage in the middle of the show. All right, That's it, crazy. It, yeah, it ended the small faces right there. He's just like, I quit, and he, and he left. All right. Now, the remaining small faces would eventually start the faces, and that would be the band with, with those guys and Ronnie Wood and Rod Stewart singing. Yeah, okay. how crazy is that? Like two very big, a lot of singers, like big singers would in this group at the time being, you know? I mean, the funny thing is, is when, when, when Lane and Jones and, and McLaughlin, uh, you know, when they were left behind, when Marriott left, they were pissed off. They said, you know, we don't want to get a lead singer anymore. We're going to just each take turns. We're not going to deal with that anymore. And then what do they do? They get Rod Stewart. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, you know, and Rod Stewart basically fucked them too, just like Marriott did eventually. Yeah. Because... Because after a couple of years, once Maggie May became a big hit in he America, was done. yeah, he I think he lasted just another year and he was gone, you know. But uh, shortly after leaving the Small Faces, Marriott joined up with Peter Frampton and drummer Jerry Shirley and bassist Greg Ridley yeah. to form the monster supergroup Humble Pie. Yeah, that was a supergroup. <clears throat> yeah, in fact, the name is because they were kind of resistant to the idea of, of it being a supergroup. They didn't look at it like that. Yeah, they okay, did not so want to be known they, as a supergroup. 
Right. They just wanted it to be like a humble band. And, but, you know, Frampton had already made a lot of waves as like this up and coming, amazing guitar player and singer and songwriter. And, and, you know, it, it just was, I mean, these two together were for this brief period was, was, was pretty amazing. Um, what would happen with Humble Pie in the beginning, and I guess really through the whole existence of the band, is is it would allow Marriott to have this kind of artistic creativity that he couldn't he couldn't get in the Small Faces, because the Small Faces they had this uh, they had this kind of like pressure to make a popular record, okay, to make yeah. a top forty record. Okay, uh, I think the record labels gave that that pressure to them. I think they probably gave it to themselves after they had a little bit of success right off the bat. You know, with what you're going to do about it and stuff like that. They felt they had to keep having hits. Humble Pie wasn't going to be that kind of band. Now, they would have, you know, very, uh, you know, albums that would do well, but they really didn't have any singles that did well. They weren't that kind of band. They were yeah. more an album, album oriented and also even more so you know, live act to see. That's really what they wanted to emphasize. Now, at that time, Marriott had contractual obligations with Immediate still. And in 69, he brought the new band into the studio to record what would be called uh, Humble Pie's first album, As Safe As Yesterday. Now, it's a blend of kind of like heavy blues, crushing rock, folk music, and post-mod pop. But Marriott wrote six songs. One was co-written with Frampton. Uh, Frampton contributed two of his own as well. There was a track called Growing Closer, which was actually written by Ian McLoggin uh, from the Small Faces. And, and there's some, I think it came to light later on, actually, is that uh, Ian actually almost joined Humble Pie. They, he was rehearsing with them early on. Okay, but once the... The other guys got the faces together. He, he just jumped ship. He didn't want to really be with Marriott anymore at that point. He was trying to figure out what to do, and I guess he just decided to go with the faces. Yeah. Now, there, there was some tracks like uh, Stick Shift, Buttermilk Boy. The title track is Safe as Yesterday. Uh, a song called Bang. Uh, a song called I'll Go Alone. Uh, Natural Born Boogie. I think that was on the, uh, the UK-only release of that album. Uh, they were all critically acclaimed. Okay, right away, the, the critics liked them. But the whole album being received well, it, it, it's got to be mentioned that there was, um, around 1970, they were in Rolling Stone, there was a guy named Mike Saunders, okay, who wrote for Rolling Stone, and he reviewed that album. And Mike Saunders would eventually be the singer in the punk band, The Angry Samoans, later <laughs> on, okay? Yeah. But he was, he was writing for Rolling Stone at that point, And he coined the word, the term heavy metal, okay? And in that review, he, he described uh, As Safe As Yesterday as a heavy metal album, okay? He, call, he called their sound heavy metal. And it's the first time that was ever really, like, used, okay? Um, the album would get to number 16 in the UK, and it would kind of, like, solidify the idea that they were this super group uh, even though the band didn't like that term, but they, they, that's what they were uh, in the UK press. They were always referred to as Supergroup Humble Pie. They went on an American tour in which Immediate Records Rush released a second album. They had done 
a lot of recording with that first album, and there was a lot of stuff left over. Supposedly, rumor has it they had something like three albums worth of material recorded wow. at that point. Now, the second album was called Town and Country, and, and the band didn't even know it was coming out. They were on tour. <laughs> yeah, they, they were on tour in, in America doing well. Okay, They were making a name for themselves playing in America. And all of a sudden, in November of 69, only three months after the first album, Town and Country comes out. But this album is different. Okay, what what they what they did is they 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 took some of the acoustic and distinctively like less heavy songs that was on the first album and released it. So it's a mellow album. It's it, it's acoustic a lot of it. All right, and kind of like slow ballady kind of stuff. Now, Humble Pie shows at this point actually featured this music, and what they would do is they would do like a short acoustic set before the electric set. So when they came out, they started off soft, and then they would get heavy. Um, all four members contributed to the songwriting on that album. Uh, Frampton plays like a Spanish-style guitar on a couple of tracks. Uh, tracks like Every Mother's Son, uh, one called The Sad Bag of Shaky Jake, and The Down Home Again. They're kind of like almost country songs. Okay, wow. And the, yeah, the album was actually produced by Andy Johns, who was the younger brother of Glenn Johns over at Olympic. And the band was on tour, like I said, when the media put this out. Um, they, they actually were going bankrupt, which is probably why they did that. The label was going down the drain. And they probably um, wanted to make a quick buck. They want to make a quick buck. And the album never got released in the U.S. at that point, which made no sense because... They were starting to get big. They should have, if they wanted to make a buck, they should have put it out in the United States. But the album proved to be like kind of so popular in the underground that FM radio stations at the time, which played a lot of underground music back then, they picked up it. on it. Yeah. yeah, they picked up on it. And it kind of like, so here you have this band that's heavy and they're making a name for themselves as a great live act. But check this out. They got this like acoustic country-ish kind of album too. They do everything. Okay, so that helped kind of bolster their reputation. Now, during set 1970, Immediate totally went bankrupt and Humble Pie signed up with A&M and they ended up hooking up with a manager named D. Anthony. D. Anthony is kind of like, he was this old school manager. I mean, he was an old guy. He was born in the 20s. He worked with guys like Jerry Vale and Tony Bennett early on in their careers. Um, and he was known to have mob ties. All yeah, right. big time, but, big time. Yeah, which we'll, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But um, when he when they signed up with with him, uh, he said, "Listen, we're gonna we're gonna push humble pie on the American market. Mostly, we're gonna hit it hard." Okay, he told them to dump the acoustic set that they would do at the beginning of the show, and just concentrate on being like the heaviest they could be. All right, and it kind of like. The early shows with Humble Pie, Marriott was the lead singer, but he would share his spotlight a little bit with Frampton. Uh, he would share it with, with uh, uh, the bass player. Um, they would, you know, not really emphasize him as much. And, and uh, D. Anthony said, no, you're the lead guy. you got to be out in front. And that kind of like, you know, that was definitely what Marriott wanted. So he went right for that. Now, some say this kind of pissed off Frampton. It might have. Okay, because it might have. And it might have led to him leaving eventually. 
But the group's first album for A&M was a self-titled album called Humble Pie. And it came out in the late 70s. It was a mix of kind of like progressive and hard rock. It was pretty heavy. Uh, they released a single called Big Black Dog, but it didn't do anything. It failed to chart. But it didn't matter because they were selling out venues like crazy across the United States. All right, they were doing very well. Um, a fourth album would be called Rock On, and it would come out in 1971. Uh, also that year, they, they opened up at the famous... Uh, they opened up for Grand Funk Railroad at the famous Shea Stadium show that everybody still talks about. Okay? Yeah. Um, that they were on stage when, when Grand Funk came in on the helicopter and everybody saw them and the crowd went nuts like they were on stage performing. Uh, also in 71, they recorded, which is probably, we're probably going to talk about this album when we do our show on live albums. It's, it, I think it's one of the best live albums ever made. It's called Performance Rockin' the Fillmore. Oh, yeah, that's, would a come great, out, that's a great album. Yeah, yeah. It would come out in 71, and the Fillmore was the Fillmore East over on 2nd Avenue. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, it just was a fantastic show recorded there. Now, D. Anthony, uh, again, you know, he was pushing Marriott to be the front man. And it really kind of shows in that, that live album. Um, one thing, too, I got to mention, and maybe a lot of people never made this connection. But if you listen to that album, and, and it was something that, that Steve Marriott did, and I think he did it, he may, might not have done it early on, but he did it definitely towards the second or third album of Humble Pie. He would just sing everything. He would sing the banter in between the songs. Okay, like, you know, like, I'm going to sing you another song. You know, he would like do like a whole thing. Okay, but if you listen to him, you could see where Paul Stanley got his whole <laughs> stick from. from mm, Kiss. Yeah. Okay. You know, and you, it's, it's to a T. It's to a T. And I, I never realized it until I was researching the show. And uh, one of the other things, we, I think it was a podcast talking about Humble Pie that I listened to. It, it mentions that and that, that Paul Stanley got that whole, you know, stage banter from Steve Marriott. And it, yeah. it has to be. I don't know if he's ever, he's ever been asked. If I ever interview Paul Stanley, remind me, I got to ask him. That. Yeah, did you but, take but, that, but, that Did you get that from Steve Marriott? I think you did, you know? Yeah. But, uh, and, and, and it, you know, it works. But um, what would happen is it, it, there would be some problems after that live album. Peter Franton decided to leave. Okay. It, it probably was because he could have made a lot, you know, he made a lot more money, obviously, you know, as, a, as a solo artist. Now, yeah, of um, course. He would be replaced by Clem Clemson, great stage name, Clem Clemson. Yeah. Uh, Marriott at that point though, you got to mention this and, and it's, you know, his drinking started to really get out of hand. Now he, he was, was always doing a, bit, a lot of cocaine also, a lot of drugs. A lot of cocaine he discovered on that tour. Uh, you know, the, there was mounds of cocaine in, dress, in dressing rooms left for him. Uh, they didn't even know how much he did. He was so much, uh, but, he also was starting to show signs of mental illness. Uh, he, he would be schizophrenic in his life. And I don't know if it was ever diagnosed specifically, but he, shown, he did show signs of schizophrenic behavior, and it was beginning in that early 70s period. Now, the first record they did with Clem Clemson on guitar was called Smokin', and it was released in 72. 
Um, there was a song called Hot and Nasty on that album that was really good. Yep. Uh, but the most famous song that's known probably by Humble Pie is on that album. It's called 30 Days in the Hole. All right. And it got to number six on the U.S. charts, that album. Uh, the band toured heavily behind it. And to be honest with you, 30 Days in a Hole is one of these like, you know, it's one of these songs that I don't understand why it's not played on the radio anymore. It's like it should, you know, it should be a classic rock but it's thing. not. They don't play but that much. But it's not. You don't. You never. You don't hear any Steve Marriott on the radio at all. No. Nah. Okay. And Humble Pie was such a big band, and you know, I don't. I don't understand that. But that's just how it, it worked out. But Thirty Days in a Hole is a song that, you know, it's it's as good as anything Grant Funk was doing. You know, I mean, I think, and and some of that still gets played on the radio. But, um, at this point, he would hire three female backup singers to give kind of more an R&B sound. And uh, they were uh, coincidentally called the Blackberries. Okay. Uh, he also hired a saxophonist named Sidney George, and they would be on the next LP, which would be called Eat It, Humble Pie, Eat It. Yeah. Okay. And it was a double album. It was released in 73, and it featured kind of acoustic, also R&B bass numbers, and there was a whole live show recorded in Glasgow. All right. The album actually got to number 13. It did pretty well. Now, Marriott always thought that D. Anthony kind of siphoned off money from Humble Pie to, to jumpstart Frampton's solo career. All right. Because even with D. Anthony, the band wasn't seeing a lot of money. They um, were. They were not he, seeing he, a lot of money. They, they, no, they, they, they were not. And, he, you know, he was able to buy a house. He was able to you know, buy cars and stuff like that. Uh, they were making a lot of money from touring, but they should have had a lot more money in sales and, and even in the touring. One day, uh, he actually confronted D'Anthony about this. And it was more, on more than one occasion, and, and D denied anything. Yeah, of course. But it got to a point where he started receiving, like, threatening phone calls in the middle of the night. Like, you know, stop asking questions and stuff like that. They, they would say they hang up on him his wife would answer the phone and there'd be like somebody threatening, threatening them. All right. And then he gets a call and he's in New York and he's, you know, it was after inquiring again about the money to DeAnthony <laughs> and he gets a call and he's, he's, he's told to go down to the Ravenite club on, on Mulberry street. And he gets there. He says, you better come down here or else, you know, and he goes down there. And it's fucking John Gotti in there. <laughs> and, and, and I, th I think Sammy the Bull also. Okay. No, no. Uh, Paul Castellano. Excuse me. Yeah, it was, and, uh, and, it was you know, the old school guys. Yeah, which, which ironically at that point in the 70s, Castellano was running the Gambino family. Now, D. Anthony was supposedly, I think, a, I think a Genovese guy. Okay. But it didn't matter. They all worked together. Yeah. And, you know, and, and if you remember Gotti, 10 years later would whack Paul Castellano, but this was when yeah. they were all together, working together. And he says, stop asking questions. So, you know, I'll break your fucking head. You know? So, <laughs> you know, so I think that ended that, but in 74, there would be an album called Thunderbox uh, that would come out. And in 75, there was an album called street rats. Both did very well. Uh, and again, the touring would, would, would be carrying it. Um, also, uh, Street Rats would be the final album of the original Humble Pie. Yeah. Okay. 
Uh, they would break up after that. Marriott was uh, really out of hand with his drug taking, his drinking. Uh, it just kind of ran its course. All right. Now, also, there was talk about reforming the small faces again. Yeah. And it was based on the fact that Ichiku Park and Lazy Sunday got a re-release in England and was doing very well again several years later. So he would reunite with the small faces again briefly for that year between 75 and 76. All right. Now, over the next few years, there would be problems. Uh, he found out that he owed a lot of back taxes in England. All right. Uh, based on humble pie, not, you know, the management not paying the taxes right and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, he, he actually, it got to a point where he was like, by 78, he was, he was broke, flat broke. Yeah. Flat, flat, flat broke. Like, like he was collecting cans. All right. To get by. Yes. He had to sell his house. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was married at that point. Marriage was on the rocks. Um, a guy that, that, that loved Steve Marriott, uh, obviously when I, when I say his name, you're going to, you're going to understand, uh, asked him to perform on his solo album. And that was Johnny Thunders. Uh, in 78, Johnny was working on the So Alone album. Yeah. And he had brought in a lot of guests. He had Peter Perry from The Only Ones. Remember that? Um, uh, yeah, Phil Linett from, from, uh, from uh, Thin Lizzy. Um, and he asked Steve Marriott to come in and play piano on the old R&B song, Daddy's Rolling Stone. And he actually plays piano. I think he sings a little bit in the background. And you can hear him on harmonica as well in that song. Uh, but again, you know, it probably was just to get a little bit of extra cash. Hey. And I could only imagine what kind of drugs went on between Marriott and Thunders. Let me ask you a question. Was the rumor <laughs> that he was going to replace uh, Mick Taylor in the Rolling Stones? Yes. Yes. We're going to talk about that right now. Um, when in, in, Humble Pie was, was basically done. Okay. Humble Pie was basically done. Yeah, they were separated. uh, Yeah, and at the same time, Mick Mick Taylor left the Rolling Stones. And, you know, I think that the Stones pretty much had Ronnie Wood in mind, but they went through the formality of a couple of auditions uh, just in case there was anything that came along. I think Richard had insisted that. I remember reading about that. Like, even though he was good friends with Ronnie... They wanted to have, you know, see what was out there, who would show up. Okay. And Steve Marriott made an appointment. He wanted, you know, if there was one band that he really wanted to work with, it was the Stones. Right? That would have that would have been a, a, a good fit. But the problem was is when he did the audition, they really just needed the guitar player. Okay. And while they were while they were jamming, Marriott, you know moved over to the mic and started singing and, you know, doing all this other shit. And, and Jagger was just not having it. He's like, fuck no, this guy. Yeah. You know, yeah. Fuck this guy. You are not gonna, you're not gonna sing. Now, you know, it's funny because we talked about Graham Parsons last week, right? Yeah. And, you know, Jagger was definitely threatened by Graham Parsons friendship a few years earlier with, with Richards. So there was no way he was going to have some guy in the band that was going to upstage him. No. You know, and that was not going to happen. But um, in 79, okay, this was after the Thunders record came out. I guess he got a little money with that. Um, he would reform Humble Pie with Jerry Shirley, 
okay? Uh, he would get a guy named Bobby Tench on guitar. He had played with Jeff Beck. And a bass player named Anthony Sudi Jones, okay? Guy from New York City. Now, there was this new song that he wrote. It was called Fool for a Pretty Face. And they recorded it together and started shopping it around. Uh, immediately, they got a bite from Atlantic Records, a subsidiary of Atlantic, actually called Atco. And they recorded a whole album called On to Victory in 1980. And A Fool for a Pretty Face, as the single, got to actually number 52 in the United States. And the album got to number 60. They would begin a tour again, uh, this time with Ted Nugent, later on with Aerosmith and a couple other acts that year. Um, in 81, Steve wanted to do like a very raw-edged kind of R&B record. All right. Now, that type of music really wasn't in style in 81 nah. anymore. But the record company said, okay, you know, well, you got to kind of do something a little more modern sounding. Um, so they kind of like, you know, the album was called Go for the Throat. And it started out as kind of an R&B record, but it would be very slickly produced. And it just sounds very like 1981. Yeah. You know? uh, but he started developing some health issues at this point. Uh, he had an ulcer that supposedly burst on stage one time when he was, when he was performing. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to explain correctly. You have to watch like old performances of him. This guy would be all out. Okay. He danced around. He yeah. He taught, moved he sang. Yeah. Yeah. He moved around a lot. So, I mean, he put in 110% with every show. Uh, he also broke his hand. All right. In a hotel room door. And that canceled the rest of the tour. Eventually, it would break the band up over like contractual obligations and stuff like that. Now, during a visit to Britain in 1981, Steve visited Ronnie Lane. And Ronnie had began using a wheelchair. He had developed multiple sclerosis. Oh, so I think at that time, yeah, I think at that time, they really didn't know what it was. Okay, but he, he really couldn't walk much anymore. And they suggested, Matt Marriott suggested that they actually, you know, play together and record some shit. So they got together with musicians Jim Leverton, Mick Weaver, Dave Hines, Zoot Money, and Mel Collins to record an album called The Magic Midgets. <laughs> and <laughs> I knew you'd like that, Magic Midgets. Um, the album was, was, was like Ronnie Lane and Marriott original songs, but they couldn't tour due to lane's illness all right and the album would never actually be released they would come out like almost 20 years later it wouldn't be released at that time uh there's a rumor that you know marriott with his arrogance i guess he had the album on a cassette and he shopped it over to arista ceo clive davis one day he made an appointment with him to to try to show him the record and Davis was listening to it in his office with him. He was tapping his foot. He was, he was digging it. He was liking the album, right? And he said to, uh, Marriott said to Davis, he says, Clive, you like the record? And he says, yeah. He goes, well, you can't fucking have it. And he took it and he walked out. <laughs> I wonder why he did that, man. What was he thinking? I, I, I don't know. I, he, at that point, there just seemed to be kind of like self-destructive shit and self-sabotaging going on. It could have been a mental illness. 
it, it, it could have been mental illness. Obviously, the drugs were still in there. Uh, drinking was still in there. He had gotten kind of fat, okay? Uh, I don't know. But for the next year and a half, he toured with, like, various musicians. Uh, he would play Small Faces sometimes, sometimes Humble Pie songs. Uh, you know, his first marriage had actually dissolved a few years earlier in 73. His second marriage to his, this wife, Pam, fell apart at this point, okay, in the early 80s. Uh, they had been separated a little bit and kind of like got back together, but it wasn't working out. And she found out that he got this other girl pregnant. So that was like the end of it, okay? Uh, he moved back to England. He was broke. He moved back to England. And remember, he owed England back taxes, all right, so he was staying with his sister in a spare room in her house. Uh, he would play pubs at this point. He would call himself like Little Stevie Marriott. And he would play pubs. Yeah, to and make some money. To make some money, but he demanded cash because he owed back taxes and didn't want to declare anything. Okay. Uh, so he connected when he was in England at this point doing this kind of like little pub gig. Uh, he connected with an old longtime friend named Madden Piercy, this girl that he knew for many years. And they ended up renting a home together. Uh, also, a company called Aura Records put out in 1984 uh, an album called Steve Marriott Live at Dingwalls. And Dingwalls was a famous club in London. Uh, him and, and, and Madden Piercy ended up having a kid together. Wow. And she kind of helped him not knock drugs and alcohol, but really kind of curtail it. Okay. He would go like a couple of months sober, things like that. Uh, he put a trio together at this point called packet of three in which you would tour Canada, America, and Europe a lot. But in 85, he ended his relationship with Piercy just a, a year later. Uh, he met a woman named Tony Poulton and it was at a packet of three gig that he met her. So he would move in with Poulton to a rented cottage in the small village of Arkesden, Arkesden, A-R-K-E-S-D-E-N, Arkesden. Uh, Marriott became well-known locally in this town. He would be like the, the local clown. He would pop in, play pranks on the, on the pub owners. He would come in in a dress, okay, act funny and stuff like that. But he would also hang out with the locals and buy them drinks and they would buy him drinks. Uh, and, they, hang out. and they loved him. And they loved him, okay? Um, through the remainder of the 80s, all right, he played in various bands, kind of like one-off lineups he would get together. Sometimes he would, like, garner some record company interest, but it would turn them, he would turn them down, like with the, you know, the, the Clive Davis kind of thing. Uh, band members would be pissed, like, hey, you know, we can get signed. What's the problem, you know? And they wouldn't want to play with him anymore. So he was just very difficult. Um, signs of schizophrenia kind of worsened by 91. Uh, earlier in the year, uh, there was a possible project that he was going to work with, uh, with Peter Frampton. They were going to reunite. Uh, they wrote some songs together, but the project really didn't ever take off. Uh, him and Tony Poulton flew back from the U.S. on April 19, 1991. Uh, this was after recording some tracks with Frampton. Uh, Marriott was drinking heavily on the flight back to England and he was fighting with Tony a lot on the plane. They were arguing. Uh, they ended up going out to dinner 
at one of Marriott's favorite restaurants called the Straw Hat in a town called Sawbridgeworth, which is not too far from where they lived. Um, he ended up drinking more that night. This guy, they this went guy back was getting to the front. Up. Yeah, it was it was just a total night of getting lumped up. Uh, they returned to a friend's house nearby, right? And they ended up staying the night. They they decided to stay. He was fighting with Tony in the in the spare bedroom uh, that they were staying in. Uh, she fell asleep and then woke up later to see him not there. And I, I and she realized he took a cab back to their apartment, their their house. They had a cottage, okay, uh, like a town or two away. Um, and he just went home. Now, in the early morning hours of that day, it's it's you know kind of unclear exactly what happened. And they know that uh, he, they they think that he fell asleep with a cigarette. Okay, because his house was found totally engulfed in yeah, flames. Yeah, it was burning. About six, six thirty, six thirty, seven o'clock in the morning, when the fire department got there, he was dead upstairs. He was wedged between the bed and the wall. Uh, some people think he might have woken up and was disoriented and went the wrong way and and ended up in that spot yeah. and couldn't get and just became overcome with smoke. And that's how he died officially from smoking. That's what they pretty much say uh, it was from the smoke. He got so much smoke. Yeah. He died from that because, you know, there's been. Yeah. So it's a, it's a tragic ending, really. You know, it's, it's sad. Um, his funeral was attended by Kenny Jones, Peter Frampton, Clem Clemson, Greg Ridley, Jerry Shirley, Rod Stewart came, P.P. Uh, P. Arnold, the, the backup singer for the song Tin Soldier. Yeah. Uh, she was there. Uh, Sadly, McLaughlin and, and, and Ronnie Lane weren't there. Ronnie was very ill. He couldn't travel. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, it, it, at that point, you know, he was kind of like a, you know, I think people viewed him as a little bit washed up. Yeah. All right. And, and, and you know, kind of not, not relevant anymore. You know, but that would change. And 10 years later, they would have a proper memorial for him at the London Astoria. Okay. A bunch of artists got together uh, and, you know, they would they would give the proper tribute to him in, in the proper place. Um, he's not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a solo artist, but in 2012, the small faces were inducted that year. Now, sadly, Ronnie Lane is gone. He died of multiple sclerosis before that induction. But uh, they, he finally got some recognition. But. You know, I think that he probably should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. At least, at least throw Humble Pie in, you know, uh, if not as a solo. I'm surprised, artist, but they're not even I'm surprised Humble Pie's not in there with that lineup they had, you know? Mm. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Peter Frampton is in there. So why wouldn't you put Humble Pie in? I think Peter Frampton's in there. So I got to look it up, but I know, I know, that's I, good. I know that definitely the small face is in there, but. The super group, yeah. so the super group got in there. That's kind of weird, you know. Yeah, yeah, man. Well, you know, like there was there was some people that loved them and some people that didn't take them that seriously. They kind of like were in that Grand Funk Railroad category where like they were like a fan band. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the, you know they they were the they were the band to see live, like Grand Funk was. You know, but they. You know, it, it. You know, it's funny when you listen to that live album. I mean, it's really reminiscent of Paul Stanley, and, and a lot of a lot of people make fun of Paul Stanley for all that that stage banter in between, where he's like, you know, yeah, you know, yelling and everything, and 
but he got that from Marriott. Yeah, he know? definitely got it from Marriott. <laughs> it, you know so. what? Imitation is a way of flattery, you know? Yeah. yeah. And all right, so that's all I got. Man, man what a what a me. life, man. The guy yeah. you know what the thing is the guy had some useful success. It wasn't always successful, but he hanged there, he went from group to group, but like you say, it's back in the days where you can start something and not sell and the record label would still give you a chance. Yeah, because they looked at the whole picture. They looked at the talent that you had, you know, uh, as long – I mean, look, even guys like even guys like Iggy, uh, you know, who were totally fucked up out of their mind, the record company knew that. Oh, yeah. Okay? But there was just such a talent there that they couldn't ignore it, you know, so they give it another shot. That doesn't happen anymore, nah. you know, and, and it's, it's a shame because music suffers for it. And um, you know, and now, now with the way this commercial now, well, how you think it is now? It's probably even worse. Yeah, yeah. I mean, now it's we're in a period in music now. It's all about the money. You know, that's it. Even 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 underground stuff. You know, it's really the, everybody's just trying to make a quick buck. So, and again, music suffers for it. But you know, uh. And we've mentioned this a couple of times over this year in shows that I think the pandemic, I think it's very possible that, you know, if, if, if when we do come out of the end of this, I think Leather Leone mentioned this the other day when we did the interview with her, is that, you know, I think people are going to be looking to get out and looking to see live music again. And there could be a resurgence of some real good rock and roll music. You know, I'm hoping, you know. I mean, I, I I like to think there's some 16 year old kid that, you know, while he's stuck, he can't go nowhere because of this fucking coronavirus. You know, he's picking up a guitar, and we're gonna get another, you know, we're gonna get another Steve Marriott or another Eddie Van Halen or somebody soon. You know, Bobby will you never know. You never know who's gonna yeah, come you, up there. You never know. Yeah, yeah. You know, so this is the 100th episode. Yeah, of the Rock Show, and. uh uh, yeah, I just want to say to all the fans that, you know, I'm blessed. I'm grateful. I'm grateful for everybody that's listened. I'm grateful to especially all the great guests we've had. We've had some some people on the show. George Figueroa did a couple of yeah. appearances. Uh, Dan Scott, Keith Reese. Um, God, Your other friend uh, that he, we did, uh, who was it? We did met uh, the other, which the other guy. That came in. I forgot the show we did. We did a show, and he was our oh, Vi- oh, Vi- Vinny. We did the show on Black Sabbath. Black Sabbath, Vinny. Yeah, Scotty. yeah, yeah. Um, God, if I'm forgetting anybody, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, but all the guests have been great. I'm thankful for all of them. Um, and you know, guys like in the bar, you know, when we were doing the shows early on on the Sunday mornings, uh, guys that just sat with us and listened to me fucking talk my shit. Yeah. Guys like Billy the Artist and Mike Louie and, you know, Boogie, right? Yeah. Shout out to Boogie. Uh, you know, and, and, and they still listen to the shows. And, uh, you know, even last night I was just getting ready to go to bed and I saw there was a message on Instagram. And there was a guy that I met a couple weeks ago in Clockworks Bar over on Essex Street. And he's like, yeah, I met you the other day. I've been listening to your shows, catching up. You're amazing. You stand above everybody else. You know, it's it's just very nice that people go out of their way and they say, 
stuff like that because we do try. Yeah, that, we, right? we, we always mean, you know, we try. We, put, we always, you know, we, we put a lot into these shows, yeah. you know, and, and I, I, I take hours out of my week to get these shows ready. It's not just, you know, slapped together. And I try to research and I try to come up with interesting angles on things. And, and uh, somehow the shows all kind of connect too. Yeah, they always you know, we've connect. We've noticed yeah. that somehow, you know. And, uh, you know, I remember when, when you asked me to do this uh, back in early part of, of 2019, you had the show, the freak show with John. Yeah. And you were starting to, to do well with that. And that was an interesting show. Still is yeah. an interesting show. You guys talking about the wrestling and the movies and whatever. Yeah, that's like the entertainment show, you know? Right, right, right. And it does good. And, and uh, yeah, you, and, and you asked me. And I was like, wow, you know, thanks, man. You know, and, uh, um, I, you know, I appreciate it. And, and I remember the, the, the first show we did was about Rick Rivets. Yep. And, and, and Rick had, you know, a good friend of mine. He had just passed away, like, I think about two weeks earlier. And I was kind of still reeling from that. So it was nice to, to do that first show dedicated on him. We might, we might revisit his career at some point soon uh, for another show. But, um, and since then, it's, it's, it's just been like a world. Yeah, we've done you know, the Ramon. Been like what, every yeah, week. Yeah, we've done the Ramon, the Sex Pistol, the Clash. The Misfits, um, Black Flag. We've done a bunch of bunch of different shows and everything. We bring a little bit of knowledge because pretty much any time Mike is reading, I, I'm always facts checking and checking out stuff and seeing um, what question I can ask. Well, he'll tell the story of these great, fantastic fucking um, bands and his unique voice that um, most people say, where are you guys from? And once we start talking, they're automatic, though, we're from New York. <laughs> yeah yeah i guess yeah that that's part of the that's part of the uh, you know of us yeah right? <laughs> we do pretty good in the uk but the sh every shows all the shows are doing like all the old shows are getting like a real fan base people are trying to listen to a lot of the old shows like the class shows they got over a thousand listening so you know with the lou Reed show got really popular and, um, you know, yeah. it's the 100th show. And if it wasn't for the fans and the people out there, you know, and uh, I'm, I'm hoping that one day we can actually make a living off this. Because right now, we, you know, we're not making a living. Everything's pretty low budget. But you know what? You get a little steam going. Hopefully we get up there and um, we keep doing this for years to come and keep entertaining people because we still got hundreds of bands that we could talk about and, oh, God. and groups and uh, yeah. people we can interview because think about it, from the rock show, we did the Mike and Rob and Sen. Then we do the conspiracy show every so often. And uh, we expanded. We expanded the Love Tub universe in a different way, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and that, you know, lumped up universe has now translated into fans in Sweden, friend, fans in Australia. We've even had listeners in Iran. Yeah. <laughs> had listeners in in, 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 I think India, yeah. right? In, in other places too. I mean, it's like, okay, we, that's you know great. What the funny you know? thing that a lot of people don't realize we got listeners like in fucking, um, like, you know, who, who really likes it? Like Canada started listening to us. A few Japanese places are listening to us. Thailand. Thailand is like amazing when you look at it. And it's, you know what? It's everything. This is uh, all about you, the fans, the people that support us, the people that love us. 
You know, we got to thank mm-hmm. you because if it wasn't for you, we wouldn't be waking up on uh, every day and doing this show. And we have a good time researching because uh, every time I look um, for research or I go online and I just watch interviews, interview hours and hours of interview from these guys to just make sense of what the hell happened to them or what, what, what were they thinking. And um, yeah. you know what? Pretty soon um, it's just going to get better and better, you know? Yeah, I mean, if we, you know, hopefully we can get to a point, make a little cash, put it back into the show, get some good equipment. You know, we're doing everything very low budget right now. Uh, But I, but you know, I think there's a, you know, it's just like punk rock. You know, in 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 the the DIY, do you do it yourself? Yeah, do it yourself. Right. This is that we're we're doing we're doing like these rock shows, like punk rock, punk rock style. Okay, it's it's you know, and and just the, the the least amount of technology. And it works. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's going to get to a point where I think that people are going to hear us. And, and, you know, again, that's all the only way that's possible is with the fans. So, we're, you know, we're really grateful for that, you know. Yeah. And that's what I think people like about because it's a simple show. We talk about we get right to the point. We talk about what we got to do. And um, people are on something yeah. from the artists that they never knew. So that's the thing that we bring yeah. to you. Even yeah. me. I mean, I learned, I, I, yeah, I, I learned stuff almost every yeah. week. Okay. Me, me too. Uh, because, you know, I, I, I mean, you know, I have a, you know, I have a pretty good knowledge of music, but I mean, I still don't know everything. Yeah. And I learn stuff every week because I dig into these artists in ways that I haven't in the past, even though, you know, like I've always liked the small things. Yeah. Okay. But I kind of never got into humble pie too. Much, yeah. And humble pie. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I recognize them as a great band and, you know, fans love them and stuff. 30 Days in the Hole is a good song. But, you know, I never delved too much into the deep cuts. And then doing a show like this, I'm like, you know, because I, I, I treat I treat this show almost like a, almost like a movie role where like you have like a like a De Niro in Taxi Driver. You know, he, he drove a cab for, for a couple months just to get the feel yeah. of it. What I do you know, method acting. Okay. What, what, what I do is I, I, you know, when I research the shows, I get into it. I, I got the music playing. I got, you know, the, the research opened up on the, you know, on the computer or in books. Cause I've got tons of books on music, different artists. And, you know, some stuff I draw from books, some I draw from the internet and other places. And I've even called people up, say, Hey, you like this band a lot. Well, what do you know about them? And, and they'll tell me. A few yeah. Things. Okay, you know, because sometimes there's, you know, bits and pieces of people's careers that other people I know know more about than me. So, you know, I'll I'll draw a little bit from everybody. I try to make it interesting. I try to make it, you know, an educational and a fun thing at the same time. And, you know, yeah, you know, a lot of these these artists they get lumped up they're drug addicts yeah, they, you know, whatever. A, but you know but you know that, that goes hand in hand you know the music industry it's an occupational it's habit. almost amazing how some of these guys can even do music and some of them done the best work and they don't even know how they did it to- like totally fucked up totally fucked yeah. up yeah you know got guys like alice cooper if you remember we talked about that show the albums he did in the you know the the early 80s he doesn't even remember recording yeah. And, you know, he's like, how did I make that album? I don't know. I, I'm looking forward <laughs> for the next couple of weeks because we got the Iron Maiden. I'm looking for the Robert Johnson. What's the guy that I used to love? Uh, Howling Wolf. And you know what? I'm definitely looking for the making of Motorhead Ace of Space. That should be interesting. 
Yeah, uh, March. Uh, well, this this episode will be aired in January. The one we're talking on yeah. now. Uh, by March, we're going to be doing March uh, Madness. Making of Mar- March Madness, the making of albums in yeah. March. Okay, and uh, that whole month we'll be talking about the making of certain albums. One of them will be uh, the Ace of Spades, and you know Motorhead. Everybody knows I love Motorhead. Um, that's just the the. the perfect album and we're going to go into how that got made um what else did i pick for that month uh you got motorhead the um, the making of the stooges roll power the rolling stones satanum and jazz yep. requests uh new york doll too much too soon and rem debut album the rem first yeah. album yeah uh and and the making of the dolls second album. yeah now, everybody knows about the everybody knows about the first album with todd rungren producing but uh, I'm a big fan of the second album as well. And that was produced by Shadow Morton of the Shangri-Las fame. Okay, so well, you know, we're going to get into that whole connection. Uh, a lot of craziness went on when they made that album, too. You know, um, well, you got to send me a list of Loving It Live, five albums that rule. Because you got to send me the list of I have, I have not. I have not come up. I can tell you right now. Off the top of my head, Humble Pie will be the one. The, 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 okay. the Fillmore. The Live at the Fillmore. Uh, Ramon's It's Alive will be okay. one. Um, I'm not, I, you know, after that, I, I, I'd like to put in Fog Hat Live. Okay. From, from the mid-70s, they had a fantastic live album. Uh, after that, the next two, I'm going to kind of, I'm going to think about it. Okay, uh, probably off the top of my head, and I'm, I'm not going to stick to this, but off the top of my head, I would say Rolling Stones, Get Your Yaya's Out. Okay, and that was the 69 show uh, recorded at Madison Square Garden. And then maybe, maybe Lou Reed's Take No Prisoners. Oh, all right. That was an, al- that was an album. It was a double live album that came out, I think it's 78, and he's at... Shit. Is he at the bottom line? I think he's at the bottom line. Don't quote me. I think it is the bottom line. And he goes off the banter in between the songs. He just goes off on rock critics (laughs) and and goes nuts. Just goes off on Robert Christigal, who's a famous rock critic at the time. It's one of my favorite live records, and I like the arrangements of the songs he does. The way he does the song. You know, some people change songs around a little bit when they do it live. But that's just off the top of my head. That's that's five I'm going to pick. If anybody's got any suggestions, they could, you know, feel free, I'll feel free to feel free to let me know. But uh, yeah, I mean that's going to be a good show too. That's coming up in uh, two weeks, end of January, yeah, two right? Week. In two, two weeks. weeks, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so Mike, how right. can people uh, find you? Okay, I am all over social media. You could find me under my regular name, which is Michael Baker, on Facebook. You could find me on the Rock Show podcast group page on Facebook, me and Rob are there. Uh, Every day we got different songs, music, information, stuff about the podcast, whatever. It's there all day I'm posting. Um, I'm also on Twitter under RockerMike3. I'm on Instagram, RockerMike3. 212 rocker mike 212 um i'm also now we're getting into some of the alternate social media because we've had so many problems with the facebook 
uh, is Parlor. Okay, I'm under Rocker Mike on Parlor, and I'm also under Rocker Mike on MeWe. MeWe M E W E is uh, an alternative to Facebook that's starting to make some waves. Not too many people on there yet, but I do post uh, regularly on there every day. Um, and check it out. Join up. Yep. And um, you can find me on anything um, lumped up. And if you really want to um, find me on Linktree uh, slash Rob Rossi. And uh, if you find me on Linktree, uh, you can see the website and all the other things, the T-shirts and everything else that uh, we do on the side and uh and the uh, web page and so on and so on. It's a lot of stuff we got uh, going on. And uh, thank you to the fan. Thank you, Rock and Mike. And people, thank you, Rob. see you next week. And have a good one. Remember, don't get drunk. The only podcast you will hear Get lumped up on the rock show.